You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Yeah, we are, right? Hey, like, uh, like Jen said and Ben mentioned earlier, my name is Travis. I am uh, on staff with Forefront. I uh, spend my time over in Manhattan. Um, we're going to talk about humility today, and I know that that's going to be a difficult subject for all you 10 o'clock service dwellers, being as committed and spiritually inclined as you are to get up this early. Get your, you know, the lion's share, the coffee and the bagels. But uh, I'll tell you what, let's pray and then uh, we'll jump in. I've got some cool stuff I'm really excited to share with you. God, uh, I thank you just for this community and I thank you for the fact that... uh, we get to worship, and we get to uh, we get to gather, and we get to uh, occupy the same space with one another. And God, we enter into this place as a collection of people who all of us have, have bought in to one degree or another to this idea that we have to project some version of ourselves that's impressive. Um, and God, we are now occupying the same space as the God who enters into that space that no one else sees. And you love us. And so, God, I pray that we will um, take a few minutes in our time together to lay aside those projections, to lay aside the versions of ourself that we put out in front of everyone else and to lay ourselves bare for you so that we can learn more about you and so that we can learn more about what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. It's in your name that I pray, Amen. Okay, so I uh, I went to Bible college, and uh, there are several stories I could tell you about why that was the weirdest experience in the world. But what it was very good for was it made me very interested in uh, in the Bible itself, but also the world surrounding the Bible. Everything that's going on in between the words on the pages when we go through and look at the scripture. So I'm going to spend just a few minutes, like 10 or 15 minutes, setting up the whole point of what we're going to talk about. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look at the Roman Empire and look at some cultural stuff surrounding that. One thing that you guys have to know, I mean... Humility in our culture is somewhat of a virtue. Would you agree? Like you, you like to have friends who are humble. We probably even uh, try ourselves to cultivate humility within our own lives and the way that we interact with the world around us. Just a quick show of hands if you agree. Humility is a good thing. Like we want to have that in our lives. We don't like hanging out with arrogant people, right? Like if they're, they're, everyone has that one person that you work with or that you know from home that like when you hear that they're going to be at the thing that you're at, you suddenly have a cold and you don't want to show up because you know they're just going to talk your leg off about how awesome they are. And we don't want to be like that. And we don't want to be around people who are like that either. But one thing that we have to understand entering into this conversation about humility, looking at the scripture that we're going to look deeper into, that, that, uh, that passage from Philippians, which we could probably all agree. We could just say amen after reading that passage and everyone could get something really good from it and go home and be a better person because of just meditating on that scripture. But there's a lot underneath the surface that even amplifies how beautiful that passage of scripture is. And the first thing that we need to make clear as we enter into this, looking at the context around this, this, uh, this verse, these verses that we're looking at is the idea that in Roman society, 
in the time and place and culture that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter into, that he's speaking into, humility is not a virtue. The virtue that everyone was trying to cultivate in their life was honor, and it was much greater than humility. Humility was a sign of shame. The, the way that Roman society kind of broke down, and this is a really oversimplified version, but we don't have all morning. You guys probably have brunch plans. And so we're going to just look at a simple version of it. But the way that Roman social classes kind of broke down is that, of course, you guys could probably guess that up at the top would be the dictator or the emperor, the person who um, is, calls all the shots, has all the honor, has all of the power and status. And right underneath the emperor, you have uh, senators and equestrians. These would be wealthy people who could own horses or people who were in the elite class. And, and senators and equestrians make up the entirety of the elite class, which would have been about uh, 2% of the population in the Roman Empire. But they controlled about 50% of the wealth in the Roman Empire. Now, what was really interesting about uh, the senators and the equestrians, the elite classes, is that they engaged in this, in this um, thing called the course of honors. Uh, the, the course of honors was this a series of social and political offices that were held by the elites in Roman society. And you would enter in as a military tribune at, at a certain age, and your whole entire life was spent trying to climb up this social and political ladder. And as you climbed up and, and uh, were elected to different offices, as you climbed up the course of honors, more honor was attached to your name by the time you died. Now, what we have to understand about honor is that it is the thing that measures the importance and the value of your existence in the world. The titles that you can inscribe in your epitaph when you die are the only thing that gives your life meaning. And so for the elite classes, everyone is engaging in this life of striving after and climbing up this social and political course of honors. And they would their entire lives climb as high as they possibly could, gaining more and accumulating and cultivating more honor to attach to their names. Now, this is What's really interesting about this is that underneath the senators and the equestrians that were participating in the actual course of honors, you have Roman citizens who were not a part of the elite class, but they had citizenship, which was a badge of honor in and of itself. If you were a citizen, you got to wear this uh, really cool garment that all of us wore uh, during rush week in college called a toga. And it was, it was the thing that showed that you are a citizen of Rome and you had certain rights as a Roman citizen. For instance, you could participate in marriage. You um, had rights that other people didn't have. And the only way that you could be a citizen is if you were a native to Rome, if you were an Italian native to Rome, or if you served in the Roman military for 25 years. After 25 years of military service, then you were granted citizenship, and there was honor that came along with that. Now, underneath citizens, people all over the empire um, that were kind of down on the social spectrum, non-elites, these were people who made up the other 98% of the Roman empire, uh, we'll just call them free people. Now, these are people who aren't necessarily citizens, but they have their freedom, and so they could have been formerly slaves and, and been freed as 
free people, or they're just people who are uh, born in a regular family um, who don't have citizenship and they don't have the rights that come along with being a citizen. Uh, But that's a ton of people throughout the Roman Empire. And then at the very, very bottom of the list, you have slaves. Now, the emperor, the dictator, who's up at the very top of the social spectrum, at the top of the course of honors, was actually equated to God in the eyes of the people. The emperor was, uh, was not just a human anymore. He had accumulated so much honor and acquired so much honor in his life that he was considered to be a deity. Emperor was equal to God. And that honor, the amount of honor that the emperor had at the top, decreased more and more as you go down this social ladder. What was really interesting is that the citizens and the free people would try to recreate and mimic this idea of the course of honors. Because in this culture, like I said before, the only thing that makes your life meaningful, the only thing that's going to last into the future, the only thing that is going to give your existence on earth any value is the amount of honor that is attributed to your name. So people who were not in the elite class would create their own courses of honor that would kind of mimic the elites. There's probably some parallels coming through your mind in, in, in our world today. But, but what they would do, they would, uh, they would create voluntary associations. And this was a mechanism for creating opportunities for people to have titles. So you might have a trade guild. All the blacksmiths get together in a certain, in a certain community and they have a trade guild, a blacksmith guild. And they would get together and they would have a treasurer of the trade guild and a president and a vice president. And these are all positions that you could hold. And then at the end of your life, when you have an inscription that describes who you were, you have your name at the top and then you just list all of your titles. So you join as many guilds and voluntary associations as you can or you would uh, join a burial association to ensure that you would have a good burial because that was a big deal for this honor-seeking culture that you uh, were buried with honor. Or another thing that you could join would be a religious organization, a religious cult in the first century. You could join uh, a religious organization such as this, um, this movement called The Way because they had offices. You would have deacons and you would have overseers you have apostles. And it started to, to mirror, to look like this course of honors that was uh, being lived out by the elites in Roman society. Are you guys tracking with me? We're kind of in the weeds, but I promise all of this is going to be relevant in a second. By the end of this, you're all going to be like, whoa! <laughs> it's coming. Just wait. Now, so if emperor is equal to God and he's all the way up at the top of the list, you can imagine that there are probably some really lofty um, writings describing who the emperor was. Now, the emperor around the time of Jesus's birth uh, was a guy named Augustus. Have you guys ever heard of Augustus? Now, Augustus was famous and he was, he was one of the most 
one of the most celebrated uh, emperors in uh, the history of Rome because there was a 13-year civil war that, that kicked off when, um, when Augustus's uh, great-uncle and adopted father, Julius Caesar, was murdered. You guys have seen the play or read the play, the Shakespeare play. He was murdered in 44 BC, and then 13 years of civil war broke out where Augustus was the general uh, who was leading one of the armies. And, and there were two major battles in a colony called Philippi that uh, Augustus's men won, which moved him into the position of emperor. Now, what this did, by ending the civil war, Augustus ushered in a time of relative peace that's known in history books as the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. Augustus was looked at as a savior. There's a quote, this is an inscription from 9 BC. I want to read it to you. And this would have been common language when describing Augustus. The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was fallen into disorder and tending towards dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aspect. Caesar, the common good fortune for all. The beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us the emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior has put an end to the war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world, the beginning of the good news concerning him. Now, you only have to about half pay attention to a lot of the songs that we sing in church to have your ears perk up to some of the lines in this inscription about Augustus. The beginning of all things. Sent to us and our descendants as Savior. Beginning of the good news. And that that word good news in the original inscription is the word eangelion, the Greek word that we translate into gospel. This is interesting, right? Am I the only one that is nerding out on this right now? I feel like this is, you guys should all be like, amen. But you're not, thank you. More coffee. It's out in the lobby. Um, Now, that's emperor, equal to God. Now, at the bottom of that social spectrum that we looked at, you have slaves. Slaves were not considered to have any honor at all. Therefore, they were considered worthless. If you were a slave, your name didn't matter. You, you had no legacy. Your family was of no importance. You know, uh, Roman culture was basically Greek culture, Hellenistic culture. Just Rome came along and co-opted what the Greeks had kind of put in place and spread throughout the entire world when Alexander the Great took over the known world. And they just kind of amplified this Hellenistic culture and co-opted it and perfected it. But one of the leading minds that developed Hellenistic culture was a philosopher named Aristotle. Have you guys heard of Aristotle and his friend Socrates? Did I pronounce that wrong? What is it? Have you guys... 
it's obviously a reference to Bill and Ted, but thanks. <laughs> this is what Aristotle has to say about slaves in this culture. And indeed, the use, of, the use made of slaves and tame animals is not very different. For both with their bodies minister to the needs of life. And so at, at the top of this ladder, at the top of this social, political spectrum of importance and honor, you have one man who is equated to God, who is called God manifest, who looks like what you would imagine if you are living in this society looks exactly like what a man would look like if he had acquired equality with God and grabbed hold of it. That's what the emperor looked like. And then at the very bottom, a person, a human being made of the same stuff as the emperor Augustus is considered to be equal, not to a God, not even to a human being, but to a tame animal who is there to carry out the needs of real people. This is the spectrum that Paul is writing into. Now, like I mentioned before when talking about the background with Augustus, Philippi was actually the site of the two battles that gave the empire to Augustus and ended the civil war. Did you guys know that? I found that to be a really interesting fact. Now, what what was interesting about Philippi is that it was actually founded after this war had ended by veterans of that civil war who had earned their citizenship after 25 years of military service and then retired and settled in Philippi. So the citizenship rate in Philippi was about 40% compared to an average of around 14% citizenship in other colonies outside of Rome itself. So the citizenship is higher than anywhere else. So you have, if you live in Philippi, you are rubbing shoulders with people who for 25 years, two and a half decades, have have fought, bled, nearly died, and killed for the honor of being called a Roman citizen so that they could wear the toga. Placing myself into this historical setting, I have to imagine that I would feel an immense amount of pressure to acquire some honor if I'm rubbing shoulders with people that have so much of it compared to me all the time. And so you have this church that exists in Philippi. This expression of this movement called the way, these followers of Jesus that had started to organize and had created a little bit of a course of honors that was reflective of what they had seen in the world that was shaping their worldview. And so you had people who were um, stepping into the office of deacon, stepping into the office of overseer, and uh, it's almost as if Paul knew what they were struggling with or what they would struggle with when he writes this letter to them. It's almost as if he could see the direction that they were going, that they were turning this thing, this way of Jesus, into something that was just reflective of everything else in the world. And he had some words to speak into that. And those words are in this letter called the letter to the Philippians. Now, the first verse of the letter is really interesting. I think it sets up the rest of the verses that we're going to look at. Because in, in Paul's greeting to the church in Philippi, he says, From Paul and Timothy, who is the guy that he was training up, Timothy of biblical fame. He would plant churches as well and become an apostle. And Paul was pouring into him. Paul's writing this from prison 
probably because of some of the stuff that he actually says explicitly in this letter. He's writing from prison, and this is what he writes. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now, I want to point out two things here because I think that this is really cool. One of those things is that in other letters that Paul writes in his greeting, he refers to himself with his title, which would be customary in this culture. He will say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. But what does he say in his letter to the Philippians? A slave. A slave of Christ Jesus. And then he addresses those who are in the church by their titles, which is showing them honor. But he is actively pulling honor away from his name, calling himself a slave. And then he gets into what he actually has to say to them. And this is what he writes. We'll read it again. We read it before, but we'll just read it again because it's that good. Philippians chapter two, verses one through 11. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be in the same mind by having the same love, being united in spirit, having one purpose, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each should in humility be moved to treat one another more important than yourself. Now, the first couple of lines, all that stuff about love and unity and all that, when the scroll is unrolled and whoever is the overseer, the deacon that's reading to the rest of the church when this letter arrives, when they start reading about love and unity, everybody's probably going, hmm, yes, hmm, amen. Brother Paul has sent us a good word from the Lord. Mm, yes, this is very good. Now, when he gets to this part where he's talking about instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vain conceit, this is going to be scandalous, maybe even offensive, because he is writing into a culture where the only thing that makes your life worth anything is the reputation that you build by the honor that you accumulate, the titles that you can attach to your name the things that you do that make you important. And Paul offers up a different view of what this whole Christianity thing is supposed to be about. He says, each of you, who sh- each of you should in humility, which is not a virtue, this is a sign of shame, each of you should be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only with your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude towards one another that Christ Jesus had. Now, if you don't tune into anything else, tune into this poem that Paul writes to this church. Because it is the foundation and the basis of everything that we should strive for and reflecting the character of God in human form that was manifest in this peasant from Nazareth named Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, And by sharing in human nature, he humbled himself. Not something that gods do. Not something that people of honor do. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross, which was a punishment that was reserved for slaves. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not the way it works. There are coins minted in Rome with with Caesar's face on them that say Caesar is Lord. If the Roman Empire, which is the most powerful and violent and, and unstoppable military force in the history of the world to that point, when they came into your colony and wanted to take over, every single knee in that colony was going to bow either voluntarily or by force, and every tongue was going to confess that Caesar is Lord. And yet we see in the gospel this picture, not of a man climbing up a course of honor in order to accomplish equality with God and grab hold of it and use it to his own advantage, but we see the inverse. We see a picture of God. We see a picture of God who did not consider Godhood as something to be grasped who had everything that every human being was scraping and clawing their way to, getting as close to God as they could possibly get by doing the right stuff and behaving the right way and gaining the right titles and building the right reputation. We see God who saw all of that and held it in his hands and considered it worthless, rubbish, and decided to empty himself, taking on the form of the lowest part of the social spectrum, taking on the form of a slave. What I find super interesting about all of this um, is that everyone is trying so hard to build themselves up And in the end of this poem, it's the one who is willing to become a slave that ends up being exalted, that ends up being honored. And while everyone was participating in this honor-seeking culture, it was as if they were in on the joke themselves and they just didn't want to let anybody else know. There's this, uh, there's this really cool thing that would happen. I would love, if I had like a time machine, I'd love to go back just to see this go down. There was a thing called a Roman triumph that would happen in Rome whenever a successful general would come back uh, after taking over a colony, after being su- successful in battle. He would come back into Rome and from the gates of the city all the way to the steps of the Senate, there would be this opulent parade where the multitudes of citizens would line the streets and there would be a golden chariot where the, where the successful general, the victorious general would ride in this golden chariot that would be pulled by a white stallion and he would have all of his prisoners of, of war and slaves that he had captured marching in front of the chariot as a sign of 
his dominance. And behind him, he would have his successful, victorious soldiers who would be unarmed as a sign that they had won and they didn't need to take up their swords anymore. And they would go all the way through the streets of of Rome and people would be chanting the name of the general and heaping honor and praise on him. Can you imagine what that would feel like? I mean, that's not very far off from the highest amount of honor that you could possibly get if you were participating in Roman culture. But what's really interesting about these Roman triumphs is that there would only be one other person that would ride in the chariot with the general. And it would be a trusted slave. And he would ride in the chariot with the general and he would hold a laurel crown hovering above the general's head. Not placing it on his head, just hovering it above the general's head. And his one job was to whisper into the general's ear over and over again, this will fade. This will fade. You are only a man. Even the elites, even those who had all of the honor, even those who had parades thrown and names chanted and laurel crowns placed on their head and statues built in their honor with, all, with inscriptions listing all of their titles and everything that made them worthy of praise. Deep down, they knew it was all going away. I have a confession I often consider equality with God as something to be grasped. I want to be great. I want to climb my way up the course of honor set before me. I want my LinkedIn profile to be the top percentile of all my peers in my field. I want to be invited to speak at conferences that are super cool, filled with people with tattoos and skinny jeans. And I want to write a book that's going to make me famous one day. And I want my daughter to grow up and fulfill all of her dreams and attribute all of her success to the love and kindness of her daddy. I want, at the end of all of this, I want someone to build a statue in my likeness and inscribe all of the things that make me so important to the world. I want that. I want to be important. I want to have a great reputation. And I spend a lot of my life trying to acquire those titles and trying to build that statue in my own likeness. But deep down inside, I know, and you guys know too, That in 200 years from now, you can build a statue for me today and it's just going to be rubble. And my great-great-grandchildren won't even know that I existed. This, all of this, will fade. So what then doesn't fade? What actually gives our life meaning? I believe that this is exactly why God abandoned his post at the top, at the pinnacle of all honor, and took on human form to show us exactly what it was that mattered, exactly what it was that makes our life meaningful. And Jesus, who had only one lifespan on earth to show humanity how to live to the fullest extent of life, to show us how to live a life that matters. 
He did not give us an outlined plan to become wealthy and happy and successful and fulfilled and important. He didn't give us a quick how-to on finding romantic fulfillment or professional relevance. What he showed us was compassion and mercy and self-sacrifice and empathy and enemy love. He invited us into a different way of seeing the world. He flipped everything upside down. He called the less thans to follow him and to be a part of what he was doing. He hired extortionists and traitors in the form of tax collectors to come and be a part of his staff. He inspired peasants who everyone else walked past and didn't see as anything special. He touched terminally ill and contagious lepers, not because he had to, but because he was willing and restored them, not just to health, but to dignity. He defended and respected the dignity of prostitutes and beggars. He paid attention to the forgotten and the marginalized. And in his last act as rabbi and friend, he washed the feet of his disciples as if he was a slave. And then in the greatest act of love and kenosis and emptying of oneself, a human can possibly carry out. He gave up his life. And all of that hard work, all of that sacrifice, all of that time, all of that mess, all of that patience, all of that humility was considered to be more worthwhile to Jesus than equality with God. Jesus shows us one of the most freeing truths that there are, that a meaningful life is not a life of personal accomplishments. A meaningful life is a life that exalts others. The peace you promote, the generosity you offer up, the empathy you extend, the willingness to see others through the lens of this beautiful and mysterious gospel, to not only consider your own interests, but the interests of others, to not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but to take on the form of a slave, a servant in the way of Jesus. So what does it look like to be a person who values humility? What does it look like to be a church that exemplifies this value of humility? We, uh, we live in a city and in a, in, a, in a culture that we are rubbing shoulders with people of ridiculous amounts of honor on a daily basis. And oftentimes, those are the people that get our attention. And oftentimes, that is where we fix our gaze and we think to ourselves one day. But what if we noticed the people that we rub shoulders with that have no honor? What if we fix our gaze on them? What if we consider their interests What if we wake up to the reality that the thing that gives our life meaning is not trying to reach the level of God? What if we realize that what God was way more interested in showing us was how to be human, how to enter into the fullness of the human experience? 
how to experience suffering with people. How to experience joy with people. How to experience the whole spectrum of humanity with others, considering their experience more important than our own. I, I really, there's a reason why we, we say as a staff that humility is kind of like the foundation for all of our other values. And I think the reason is because when we don't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but empty ourselves out for the interests of others and take on the form of a slave, a servant to other humans, it becomes a lot easier to be generous with our time and money. It becomes a lot more possible to have a community that is diverse in opinions and diverse in wealth and diverse in culture, diverse in ethnicity. It becomes a lot more realistic to be the type of community that reflects our values. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this place. Um, I thank you so much for the fact that while we are often fickle, you are always faithful. I thank you for the fact that while we are often slaves to our own egos, um, slaves to our thirst for honor and power, you're patient with us. And you ever so gently direct our eyes back to the gospel where though you did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, you emptied yourself, made yourself in the likeness of human beings, taking on flesh so that we could see what actually gives life meaning. Thank you for giving us something that does not fade, which is a lifetime spent honoring others and promoting peace and shaping the world into a world that looks much more like the kingdom of Jesus than it does the empire of Caesar. Humble us, fill us with your spirit. It's in your name that I pray.